Hello everybody, welcome to the Arkansas Independence Podcast. I've got a new episode and I'm here with Nate Bell for episode 9. Nate is a former representative for Arkansas and I'm super glad to have him with us today. I've been following Nate on Twitter and bugging him a little bit online so I could get him to sit down with me, but I got him here today. So Nate, thanks for coming on. And uh, first question right out of the gate because I'm, because I'm a freshman candidate and I'm trying to learn. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you what what was your experience like your when you first got elected? What was the experience like as a freshman and kind of coming into the system, if you will? Certainly. Well, I was the very definition of a grassroots candidate. Um, I first ran for office in 2000 for state office in 2010. And uh, in that campaign, I got one lobbyist contribution uh, for $250 and uh, all of the rest of the money. Um, nobody thought I would win. And so all of the rest of the money that I raised was raised from individ- individual contributors and uh, most of it $50 at a time. And uh, I raised around $25,000 that way. And uh, um, at that time, that was enough to run a wow. viable campaign. It's pretty tough to do uh, these days with, with, with that amount, but uh, it, it was enough to be effective. And uh, we did we won and won um, with about a 20% margin, um, which uh, made me the first Republican um, ever elected in my, um, in my district. Uh, it had been uh, a Democrat-held seat uh, since the Civil War and uh, had— uh, Wow. Um, I was one of those Tea Party guys that came in um, as a true believer. I, um, you know, believed and still do in the stated goals of the Tea Party, which obviously got hijacked and became something much different um, over time. And we could talk all day about that. But um, I'm a fiscal <laughs> conservative and I'm, I'm very much personally a social conservative. But what I do believe in is limited government. And that, you know, just because I have a set of beliefs does not mean that um, when I'm in the majority in government, uh, I get to operate government as an authoritarian operation to force my belief systems on others. And I think our Constitution um, stands in the way of that. And so, um, you know, there's been quite an evolution in my party. Um, You know, obviously there are many on the left who um, would say that the party's always been authoritarian. And I think most of that's actually because there are policy disagreements and not that it was actually authoritarian. But we could debate that all along, all day. I just, I watched the rise of that kind of ugly thing um, getting more and more tolerated all the way up uh, through into 2015 and actually a race that was uh, right there in your local area was one of the ones that really led me to the conclusion that I needed to um, exit the Republican Party, um, which I did in June of 2015. That during that race, there were party rules, internal rules that were just broken with impunity um, by uh, Benny Speaks, who was the first district chairman at the time and resident of Mountain Home. And, uh, you know, he he went all in for Mr. Flippo versus Mr. Burris in your Senate race there and uh, broke broke a litany of party rules. And uh, I worked very hard to see that he was held to account for those rules violations internally within the party and was not only rebuffed on that, but uh, uh, actually 
Mr. Speaks was given awards by the party chairman for his meritorious service while he was blatantly violating party rules. And uh, that really was one of two or three things that led me to say, you know, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as a freshman legislator, um, I think everybody comes in with some high hopes. And, you know, I, I came in certainly with the hope that I could uh, help reform state government in a way that made it uh, more transparent, um, more, more efficient and effective. And I, I, the more time you serve, the more you realize that, you know, no one person can have a, a tremendous effect, but you can certainly work around the margins to make things different. And I, you know, I settled in, moved into House leadership, um, became chairman of the state agency's governmental affairs committee, um, did a lot um, towards reforming state government and making it work better. And, uh, you know, in uh, all elections legislation also, also comes through that committee. And I'm a bit of an elections nerd. So I, I spent a lot of uh, my time working on improving state agency performance, looking at how we regulate and trying to make our regulatory system work better for the people in the state and ensuring that we had uh, honest and fair and open and easily accessible elections. And, uh, you know, as, as a part of that work, uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why I, I take great personal offense when I hear people talk about Arkansas elections being corrupt just because I personally know the background of um, where we came from and where we are. And uh, it's just election corruption in Arkansas is near non-existent these days. It happens, but it's very, very minor and very small. And uh, it, you know, there, as long as there are human beings involved, there will always be corruption. But I, I can say with some confidence that I, there have been few, if any, elections in the last 10 years in this state where corruption actually had any effect on the outcome. Yeah. Okay. What What was the, dis, the, the district that you, I didn't catch that part, where was the district that you served? I represented district, when I was elected, I was elected in District 20. Following the 2010 census, um, that was renumbered to District 22 with a with a small change in the territory, but it was Polk and Montgomery counties um, in west central Arkansas, just west of Hot Springs, um, with a significant piece of okay. um, Sevier County included. Um, but in the Sevier County area, I had a lot of land and very few people. So um, Sevier, I have probably represented around half of Sevier County, but oh, less than, I, I would say about 8% of the population. Yeah. I, uh, the Flippo Burris campaign was one that I watched as well. I probably leaned more Republican than I do now, uh, to be honest. So I think we're, where it has maybe pushed you out of a section of the Republican Party, it kind of, it kind of pushed me out of it altogether. Which I was never that deep into it, but I was raised by Republicans and seeing some of that. Um, I don't know, you know, seeing how some of that kind of mo uh, money moves around and all that stuff. And I don't want to repeat everything you just said, but for the same reasons, it, it didn't really seem like these people wanted to preserve the fairness of the system. They wanted to take it over, and that's that's what. There's a lot of politics, or sorry, there's a lot of Republicans in the state that I really like and would, and wouldn't run against, you know. But in that, in this case, I see um, a problem, you know. So I'm trying to fix that if I can. But anyway, 
Derek, to be clear, I, I am very definitely not a Republican. Um, I, I left the party formally in June of 2015 and have uh, been outspoken against what is currently an ongoing problem within the Arkansas Republican Party. It is not the party. It doesn't have the same values of the party that uh, I worked hard to help uh, achieve a majority in this state and uh, frankly has become more dedicated to um, the kind of borderline fascist um, ideals of a guy named Donald Trump. And, you know, um, we still have some very good people in the Republican Party in this state. Um, You know, our governor's been somewhat outspoken um, in calling that out, um, but that's made him fairly unpopular within his own party, even at the same time that it's made him popular with Arkansans. Um, the party, you know, there are even still some a few good people in party leadership. There are certainly some good, solid people in the legislature. Um, I wish they would speak up more. Um, it's it's yeah. I, I think if you were to speak with most legislators and speak with them candidly, they're upset and uh, really don't like the direction that they see things going. But at the same time, they won't do what it takes to use their leadership post um to speak out against it they're they're just not willing to take that risk and um that it's unfortunate and it, and it's something that uh, i certainly wish were different you're like an early adopter so to speak you know like there's a lot of people that now after these hearings will come out there's a lot more people that will say oh dang trump trump lied to us this was a fundraising scheme whatever it was but I wonder how many, and I wonder how many Republicans, like you're saying, I wish they would speak up. There's a part of me that feels like that time is coming where you have so many of them that are falling all over themselves this past six months to some ridiculous links to get the Trump endorsement. Um, so far as even photoshopping pictures with him and stuff on mailers, supposedly, you know, I'm not going to name anybody's names because I haven't verified that personally but uh you know it's no secret that they're falling all over each other to get the former guy's endorsement at the same time that these hearings are coming out where everyone that surrounded trump basically said what a lot of us already knew and like i say you would you would think that the republican voter is going to come around to that and see that and put a little bit of a rebuke on that in arkansas but I don't know that that's true. I just hope it's true. Yeah, I think, you know, there are a number of people. The governor, the governor's shown real leadership on this. And, I, and, and you know, while I yeah. wish he'd been more outspoken than he has been, he's certainly been someone who has spoken up and has at least taken um, a stand. And it's a, it's a stand that has has certainly um, helped many to at least begin to ask questions. And, you know, I, the, facts, yeah. the facts are what the facts are. And if people will just open their eyes and look at the facts and look at the evidence. You know, one of my favorite quotes um, ever comes from John Adams. And, you know, John Adams was one of the um, founders of this country, one of those revolutionary guys who... Um, really didn't like the British and was working to overthrow the British government. But at the same time, he understood that the rule of law mattered and that um, we couldn't found a country on the basis of 
winning just because we didn't like somebody. And I, and I think, you know, when you look at his defense of the British soldiers from the so-called Boston Massacre and how he, he went to bat and said, look, when all of the other revolutionaries were saying, you know, how terrible Adams was for defending these guys, he's like, look, they're falsely accused. They're not guilty of what they're accused of, and it's my duty to defend them, um, or we or we we don't have the right on our side. And he gave a quote in his yeah. closing statement um, that is probably my favorite political quote of all time. But he said, you know, it doesn't matter what the dictates of our passions. It doesn't matter about our emotions. Um, none of those can alter the state of the facts and the evidence. And I think that's ultimately where we are in this country today. We have a lot of people who, because they don't like what they see liberal progressives doing policy-wise in this country, believe that anything's okay and that any subterfuge, any yeah. um, disrespect for the law, uh, you know, as long as you can holler socialist loud enough, um, you know, it, do, it doesn't matter if if you're flagrantly breaking the law and, and disrespecting the Constitution. And that's no way to win. And ultimately, when you win that way, yeah. it backfires on you. And that's that's what why I'm so disappointed in what I've seen out of my former party. Um, you know, the Republican platform of 2014. Uh, you know, here in the state, I was on the platform committee in 2014 and was a major contributor to that pla that platform. I believe in that. Um, I don't believe in the 2020 platform, which was what whatever Donald Trump wants, that's what we're going to do. And, you know, that's basically what they adopted. And it's, you know, we, we've come a long, long ways in this country over the last few years, and I don't think it's for our betterment. There was a backlash in this state um, to Barack Obama being president of the United States. Um, some of that, I'm sure, had a racist element. Some of it had to do with the fact that he was quite progressive um, in his policies. And, you know, that's one of the things that incentivized me to run for office is I strongly disagreed with his policies. But at the end of the day, um, what I also understood is that, you know, he legitimately was the president of the United States and that some of my associates were out there, you know, running conspiracy theories and all sorts of other crazy things instead of challenging him on the merits of his policy. And I, and I saw that trend begin to grow. And until now, what it seems like is happening in um, the Republican Party is more of a focus on just scream really loud, say any kind of crazy thing you can imagine, and let's not have a substantive argument about the merits or lack thereof of a policy or of someone's policies. And you take that and couple it with the news um, bubbles that they create where you don't have to hear anything that doesn't tickle your ears. And um, we really have a situation where you can insulate yourself from anything you disagree with, and it becomes very easy to passionately believe that you're on the right side and really are fighting evil. Um, Amanda Carpenter, who um, worked for the Cruz campaign in 2016 um, and is you know, a fairly well-known pundit, I've, I've gotten to know her a little bit over the last few years, and one of the things that I heard her say something a while back that I think really summed it up well. She said, you know, a lot of these folks 
really are patriots. They 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 what they believe in America. They're fighting for America and and, and for the Constitution. They've just been misled. And that, that really is a lot of what's going on. And I think it's very easy for folks on the left in particular to look at them because they disagree with the, those folks on policy and somehow believe that they're evil. And there are some that are evil, but there are very few of them that are evil. Most of those are really good, solid American, hardworking folks who have been lied to. And they unfortunately believe those lies. And now they believe that they are standing up for America. And... You know, when in reality they're being taken advantage of, and as we saw just this, um, what, Monday in the um, January 6th hearings, you know, they got fleeced for $250 million on the basis of fighting election fraud, when in reality none of it went to fight election fraud because there wasn't any. And, you know, that's that's the kind of scam that they're being repeatedly um used and you know at some point you become responsible for allowing yourself to be used like that but frankly most americans don't pay attention to politics on the level that nerds like you and i do and so they you know they believe the they believe the so-called news sources that they get their information from and at the end of the day um they take it you know when they have politicians who lack the um personal integrity to call it out because it benefits them not to right um it just feeds that and so the spiral goes downward instead of instead of flatlining at some point well i'll be honest with you nate i voted for obama but i gotta tell you i really did like mccain and i i always personally thought that if mccain didn't if he had not picked palin i really think he would have won that election and I've kind of looked at that, uh, or, you know, I've thought more about conservative backlash, uh, as it were, to, to Obama. And I've wondered, is it really race, or is it because, you know, here in Arkansas, is it because gay marriage passed under Obama? That's one thing that kind of gets, gets thrown out there a lot as far as, now we're talking about, you know, we're talking about Democrats leaving the Democratic Party. So straight up, or they just quit voting, one of the two, a little bit of both. So in looking at in looking at that, it's what really about about Obama made it turn made them turn, or what about that time period made them turn? And you also got to remember they were coming off the heels of Clinton, which turned a lot of Democrats here sour, uh, at least the ones I know. So maybe it was a combination of things going downhill for a while. I don't know. You know, I think. A lot of the people who are the most virulent and outspoken MAGA voters in Arkansas today were voting Democrat in 2004 and 2006 in this state. And I think that's something that a lot of my Democrat friends don't want to confront. But you take Polk County, where I lived um, at the time that all this began to gel, there was not one elected Republican in county government in 2002. Zero. There were, I was told repeatedly when I looked at running for office, look, you know, Nate, we like you, but there's no way you're going to win unless you run as a Democrat. Um, those same people now yeah. won't it's vote so for a Democrat to, to save your life. And so I think it's important for people of all parties to recognize and understand why that shift happened. And there are a couple of things that I think contribute to that. Um, and I, you know, a lot of folks probably don't know, but I, I, I have run campaigns um, for a number of people for 
a couple of decades now and have advised some um, campaigns at, ver- at a variety of levels. I, I, and I know this business pretty well. And I, I think when you look at that, how that change happened, what, what you see pretty quickly is that Arkansas voters are not quite as simple as a lot of people think they are. And I think particularly on the left, they want to look at them as um, closed-minded simpletons and that type of thing. And, and, and there certainly are those voters, but they're not the bulk of who is voting to elect Republicans in this state today. The, the average Arkansas voter wants to be left alone. They want government to leave them alone. They don't want government to be doing some of the crazy things that we saw come out of the Obama administration with regulating the water in the ditches on their farm. You know, that's, they, they, want, they, they, they don't want government meddling. But they, you know, Arkansas voters also a very populist voter. They like big government programs. This is a state that is not fiscally conservative in any form or fashion. Um, and in fact, I've always, you know, coached my conservative Republican um, candidates that I've worked with to tell them, look, you can be a fiscal conservative in this state, but you have to do it quietly. You won't win elections if you're a fiscal conservative. You, elections in Arkansas are decided based on social conservatism. And it's something that um, the Democrat Party in this state won consistently until they rejected social conservatism. And as soon as they rejected social conservatism, they began to lose consistently. And the people in this state are, are, are fiercely social conservative. Mike Huckabee is actually the politician who probably grasps this better than anybody. Um, you know, Huckabee was certainly a social con on every level. He was also the biggest spending governor in the history of the state of Arkansas. He tripled spending versus Bill Clinton and passed the largest tax increase in, in state history. A lot of people don't realize that, and I think, you know, but he was a very popular governor who won re-election by a large margin um, because he was fiercely socially conservative. And the Arkansas voters just are. I, I, I've always sort of snarkily referred to um, what I call the three G's of Arkansas politics. That was a little more um, pertinent back when 3G meant something instead of 5G, but uh, the three G's of Arkansas politics are God, guns, and gays. And you better not be wrong on any of the three if you want to win elections. And, um, you know, if you if you disagree with the social positions that the bulk of the voters have in this state, unless you're in, um, you know, downtown Little Rock, um, a couple of spots still in the Delta or downtown Fayetteville, you better be quiet about it. And um, what happens, and it, it's one of my frustrations, you know, I, I believe that two viable parties really benefit everybody in the state. And the Arkansas Democrat Party is, has marginalized itself Totally, and what happens then? They make it hard for someone like yourself, running as a Democrat in a um, more conservative district, um, to win because you have the the Democrats who are elected in these more progressive left districts, who then go file hard progressive left legislation. And when they file that that progressive left legislation, it it's very easy then because they like it because it protects them in a primary. And so ultimately, then that makes it hard for Democrats throughout the rest of the state to win and virtually ensures that they remain a minority. And for whatever reason, nobody's willing to break that cycle, which gets me to, I think, 
One of the most important reforms that I think we need to do in this state is change how we do primaries. Um, you know, fewer than 20% of the voters in this state actually vote in primaries. It's typically about 16 or 17%. And these are the people who decide what candidates are going to be on our ballot in November. And they ultimately have, you know, everybody loves to go in in November and go, man, I hate these choices. Well, guess how you got those choices? You probably didn't vote, 80% of you didn't vote in the primary. And so the result right. is you get really rotten choices in November. I'm pretty agitated about that process, too, because, for instance, this year I voted in the uh, Democratic primary because I wanted to vote for Chris Jones. I specifically wanted to just add to his number. You know, I felt like it was important that he had a decent showing. Uh, I questioned it. I definitely questioned it. Um, but I but I chose to go ahead and go that route. Well, they ended up having a runoff on the county judge here in Baxter County, and I can't even vote in the runoff. Uh-huh. So I don't get the vote. And so I did a post about that the other day, but I looked it up, you know, and there was... 641 that voted in the Democratic primary, uh, so that's 641. These are those of us that would go vote. You know what I mean? We're we're part of that. Probably less than way less than 20 percent here. To be honest, it's going to be more like 12 percent or less people here, and that's just the unfortunate truth. But those 641 people would would you know statistically take part. Um, so it's very frustrating because there was four candidates, now there's only two. You obviously, the people that voted for the two candidates eliminated can come back and vote and make a choice. So the election is very much going to be won here by, I mean, we're talking it could be single-digit numbers. And nearly 700 of us don't get a say. Well, That's, That shouldn't me, be that make, way. Let me make the counterpoint for you just real briefly because I think there is a valid counterpoint. I already know. Go ahead, though. Well, I, yeah. and it, it's important that it get made because I actually think it leads to where how I think the reform needs to be structured. Um, you know, okay. a party has a right to select its candidates. And so, you know, parties traditionally actually didn't even select via primary. They selected via caucus. And then we moved to a little bit of a more democratic model and started saying, OK, we're not going to select via caucus anymore. Um, at least here in Arkansas, some states still do use a caucus, but we're, we're going to select via primary. And um, so, you know, if you actually look at the history, a lot of folks don't know, Governor Hutchison actually is the was the plaintiff in the lawsuit, oh, 40 years ago, I guess now, to, that sued the state of Arkansas to require that there be a Republican primary on the ballot. Prior to that, there was no Republican primary on the ballot. The Democrat Party would not allow it. And... Um, and actually would make the party pay for any costs associated with any Republican election that was placed on the ballot. So he was actually the plaintiff who um, sued and won to get us to where we actually have two primaries. Um, And, you know, so I'm sensitive to that, but I think there's actually a better way. And I think one of the better ways... You know, once you've voted in that Democrat primary, I don't think you should have a right to jump back over and say, OK, now I want to interfere in the Republican race after I decided I wanted to vote in the Democrat race, vote in the Republican race the first time. Now, but I think the better way is to allow everyone and all the candidates to be in one pool. And I'm a big fan of what's called final four voting, which is where 
the top four candidates in the primary, top four vote getters advance to the general election. And then in the general election, you just simply number the candidates, one, two, three, four. And we have an instant runoff election. And there are no runoffs. And why do I like four? A lot of people who are saying, well, why don't you just send two? Well, that virtually ensures that we have more of the same. We just get the Democrat and we get the Republican. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have four, what it guarantees you is that in every district, you have the dominant party. You tend to get the most extreme member of the dominant party, probably your top vote getter. Then you get uh, you'll get the minority party will typically be the number two. Then you'll get there's a wide opening for a moderate that kind of bridges between the two parties um, who almost always would advance. And then typically you might get a third party candidate. But typically that moderate will be of the majority party, but a less extreme version. Then you go to the November election where you have final four voting. And what you're going to find is that moderate candidate is going to do better than any of the rest because they have a broader appeal. And so while they might not be exactly. everyone's everyone's first choice, they're going to be virtually everybody's second choice. And that's where you get. So what what a system like that does is it begins to penalize extremism. And, you know, whether it's AOC left progressivism or, you know, Brian King right wing extremism, um, it's it's important that we we have a system that says, look, that's not where the bulk of Americans are. Um, that you know, here in Arkansas, that's not where the bulk of Arkansans are, and we we would start to see at least one choice on our November ballots that was more representative of the general population. And so, uh, you know, I, this is something I'm pretty passionate about. Something I've devoted a lot of my time to, and will continue to devote time to moving forward. I, you know, one of the things that I think we also have to take devote some time to is just talking about how um, money is used to corrupt the primary process. And um, we, you know, one of the things that, um, it actually, the first time I saw them pop up was in the Flippo Burris race that uh, you mentioned, uh, or that I mentioned, I guess, earlier when we talked a little about, where um, this group, I call them the conduit cabal, but uh, they're um, one guy, one wealthy government contractor in Fayetteville and his children, just uh, throw money into these primaries um, through a litany of PACs and uh, various shadow organizations. Um, And, you know, they'll go in and dump um, 80% of a candidate's funding through all these different PACs. Uh, I know they operate at least 15 PACs, um, and, uh, you know, each one of those can max out to a candidate. So at $2,900 each, you know, you're talking about taking a, a candidate that needs Thirty-five or forty thousand dollars to run a race, they can essentially fund it, and um, with mm-hmm. you know one family, and they you know they have all these nice names for their packs that make it look like the candidate has broad support when in reality it's one guy and his kids, and I think you know then operating various news organizations uh, or so-called news organizations to put out a propaganda line and a slant on on a situation while filling people's mailboxes full of mailers and various other things is, you know, it's really shady. It's, it's, it's one guy trying to buy control of state, state government, frankly, he's just the guy that happened to have a lot of money and um, has his own vision and feels like he can buy it. And uh, it's been, you know, he's been 
he's been successful in some instances and not so successful in others. But it's it's a very corrupting influence on state government. Let me back up and ask you just for our for our you know our casual viewer here. I want to take one. Do you have another? Do I got you for another twenty minutes? You think, Nate? Are we? Are we good? Uh, I've time? got another fifteen. I've got another fifteen for sure. Okay, that gives us time. Let's let's just quickly then. Most people do not even understand. I say this respectfully. I, I don't feel most people understand what a what a PAC is, a PAC, Political Action Committee. And for for people listening, you know, give us really break that down into simple forms because him. Uh, a pack as conduit is significant. Uh, conduit having you know fifteen to twenty packs. Now you're talking a whole umbrella corporation. If we were to transfer that terminology into a different world, but if you can simplify that for me. Well, I think one of the most important things is it's a way to evade contribution limits. So in Arkansas, one person is prohibited from giving more than twenty nine hundred dollars to a candidate per election. So a married couple could give $5,800 max and um, per election. So, the, you know, a candidate, a party candidate has both a primary and a general election, even if they're not opposed. So, you know, the maximum that a married couple could give in an election cycle would be $11,600 to one candidate. What is done with PACs, there's no limit on the number of PACs that a person can create. So um, you could go create 50 packs if you want to deal with all the paperwork. And you can give one individual per year can give $5,000 to a pack. So in the case of Conduit, for example, um, Mr. Maynard, who is the patriarch behind it, and his children each are fond of giving $3,333 to each pack. So between them, you know, they, they wind up funding that pack to the tune of about $12,000, a little over, almost thirteen. That um, then, but when you create a whole bunch of packs like that, you can, instead of Mr. Maynard being able to give $2,900 to a candidate per election, he can now give that to them via these packs that he controls um, 15 times. And he can double that to 30 times if he makes a donation for both primary and general election. So, um, you know, he, instead of having a $2,900 contribution limit or a $5,800 contribution limit for the entire cycle, has now may put himself in a position where he has a, uh, what's 15, oh, right at a $40,000 contribution limit. And, um, it's uh, it's yeah. it's it's just a way to game the system, and um, he's done it quite effectively. Yeah. So basically, buying buying politicians because he's breaking down that cost per vote and then spending it wisely, I guess, in his case. But well, you can take you can well, take. Well, I think a, that you, helps break it down. You can take a candidate who literally has no real support base other than him. And he can make them an effective and viable candidate. And that's that's what we see repeated around the state is a candidate who really has no real appeal to voters it can can buy the name ID that is necessary to be um, viable in an election um, just simply on the basis of um, having one guy's support. 
How, how do we address something like that? I mean, that would be, my, I guess, my next question with the time we have left. If you, if we know, and it is, people can find it online. I'll, I'll post some stuff in the show notes and stuff too. But basically here what we have, and you've already stated it, but again, you have one person that can that can gain the system by distributing by essentially laundering their money through LLC paperwork. So that's really what it is at the at the launder might be a strong term, but it's really not because it's still allowing one person to make multiple contributions from what is essentially one one paycheck at the end of the day. But well, my, Derek, I hear Derek, a lot of people of, talking about one other thing that I would interject there is if, um, it's also allowed corporate money to be hidden. One of the huge problems that okay. I've always had with prohibiting corporate contributions is the fact that it just drives the money underground. Um, I, I'm, I'm one who's always believed that the best, the, the best disinfectants actually sunlight and just require people to report who's contributing to them. But the way these packs are constructed, a corporation can give to the pack and their name won't even show up on the candidate's um, contribution list. You're going to have to go pull the PAC's contribution list and then go back through that to see who contributed to the PAC to even know who's behind the money to, the, to a candidate. And so it just allows this money to be buried deeply instead of being transparent. Yeah. And frankly, I'd much rather have corporate contributions to, directly to candidates than corporate contributions made to PACs and then buried. What is there any states, or maybe this is federal laws, but is there any state that just disallows PACs? Is there anyone that has taken a stand against PAC as a as a construct? Not, not that I'm familiar with. And you know, I, I I don't think that there's really. I don't think PACs themselves are the problem. I think it's allowing the unlimited creation of PACs by one or two people. Um, so, you know, yeah. I think the you have to basically create a system where you limit one person's ability to contribute multiple times. And we th that's actually yeah. not as difficult to do. There are some speech issues with actually saying you just can't form a pack. I, I and I and I you know as a civil libertarian would would really have some significant problems with that. But I, I think enhancing the transparency on packs and making it where um, you know, it's it's more clear who's actually behind that pack, and um, you know, limiting again. I think limiting the number. I don't think anybody needs fifteen or twenty packs. I I, I find that I find it difficult yeah. to believe that that's that that's really an expression of their speech. I think that's uh, that's fairly clearly an attempt to game the system. I don't know why they got rid of the corporate con I mean, I think I know why they got rid of corporate contributions, but hearing you talk about it in this sense, I would rather have those back too. But I would also, I also don't know that, that PACs need to be given money if, if we can allow corporates to donate. And if people can donate as individuals anyway, then maybe PACs should be centered around more of the, the, well, the action, you know, registering people to vote, campaigning, that kind of stuff, but not being a, distributor of money just a thought but you know i'm sure there's I, one thing i let me ask you about this because i know i'm losing time here but i do hear a lot of the democrats talking about you know issues with citizens united and and how many problems has come from that do you have thoughts on on that in particular 
You may have seen my tweet yesterday. I actually tweeted direct, that went directly at Citizen United. Um, it, it, oh, it's always it's fascinating to me that um, a lot of my friends on the left are perfectly okay with the same rights being um, given to a labor union that they are totally opposed to for a corporation. Both are simply an association of people for a stated purpose. And if a labor union has the right to make contributions, if a labor union has the right to be a corporate voice for a group of people and to negotiate on their behalf, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. then there is no logical or moral reason that a corporation shouldn't be able to do the same thing. I think you have to say it's either one or the other. And frankly, I think most people on the right accept that point of view. But I think more deeply it goes to the Constitution, and it really, there are some constitutional reasons. You know, if you actually go look at Citizens United, it really was less about um, a corporate contribution and more about the corporate free speech. And I don't think there's ever actually been a case that directly addressed the contribution element. You know, Citizens United, basically, a company was told, look, you, you can't fund this expression of speech because it's political. And so it really wasn't a true political contribution um, case. And, I, you know, the, yeah. there are a lot of concerns all the way around how we, how we deal with speech. But I think I just think I see the liberal left largely as hypocritical on this because they they think it's perfectly okay for labor unions to do what they don't want corporations to do. And I think you you just have to have one or the other. And I I I'd be fine with eliminating both as far as their ability to do it. But you do have to take a long, hard look at the constitutional definition of person and like it or not, the Constitution really doesn't limit um, how some. You know, they don't indicate that a person loses their rights because they um, group themselves with a group of other people. In fact, the First Amendment somewhat um, to the contrary of that, indicating that we have the freedom of association and that, you know, our rights aren't affected by who we associate with. And so I I think there's a lot of there are a lot of issues there. The other thing that's that's interesting um, when you start delving into the whole question of personhood is the fact that a lot of people don't realize just how different it is from citizen. So a citizen of this country clearly is an individual. You can't become a citizen of this country um, unless you are born here or naturalized, which indicates that you are a human. Um, But a person is more broadly defined in the Constitution, and clearly the founders' intent was that it was something other than just specific to a citizen. So the rights that we have under the Constitution are afforded to every person who is present within our borders, whether they're a citizen, illegal alien, uh, somebody who landed here from Mars, whatever. If they're here, they, um, you know, they have rights under the, they have constitutional rights. It's one of the reasons why U.S. was so resistant yeah. to ever landing the Guantanamo prisoners on our soil, because the instant they're here, they have full constitutional rights. And so... Um, I think that's one, and I've always been troubled by my friends on the right, uh, so I'll I'll throw a punch at them here, um, who are strongly pro-life, because the same thing applies. You can't say that an unborn child has rights under the Constitution as a citizen because they haven't been born yet. So if you're going to say that um, constitutional rights don't extend to persons, 
such as an illegal alien or an unborn child, then you have um, no grounds to make the debate that, um, you know, that child has has rights under the Constitution. Um, And so it's, you know, you really can't be anti rights for an illegal immigrant and um, be for the rights of an unborn child because neither one's a citizen. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking a dig at the other side in this conversation here. (laughs) You took a couple shots at my side, so I was waiting. No, I'm just kidding. I take shots at both sides, and I really think that's why I like you so much, to be honest, because people ask me sometimes, especially my Republican friends, you know, like, why in the world are you running as a Democrat, you know? And it's like, well, because I want to make it better. And and the the Democratic Party never gets better if people within the Democratic Party never start to question their leadership. And I think we're seeing the same thing in the Republican Party now where it's it, it became highly discouraged to display healthy skepticism, so much so that you would be ostracized from from the party. So when I see, you know, people like you or myself that are not afraid of the compromise uh, word or not afraid of challenging whatever party we're associated with, it, it really gives me a lot of hope because I know there has to be challengers within. Even though you're not, you know, currently uh, a representative, you're still very much in the system. You're still very much active. And so knowing that your mindset is out there and people listen to you, man. I mean, I see a lot of people interacting with you. I interact with you. And it's just really, I'm kind of loving on you right now, but it's just really great to be able to even visit with a Republican on here and that we can talk candidly. And I appreciate you, man. I hope you, I hope you keep challenging your party and I'm going to keep challenging mine, you know, and hopefully we can uh, just be a part of something that's a little healthier here, if nothing else. Well, there's more than enough hypocrisy to go around on both sides. And, you know, I I think it's important (laughs) that we have uh, we have good people who are willing to speak up. And, you know, this um, someone I respect very highly um, is David French. And you may I don't know if you follow him at all, but David has been he's someone that um, has a lot of the same values I do. And. Um, you know, David will tell you that one of the, in fact, he wrote an article on this um, back in 2019 that um, really um, I was impressed with, um, how, we, how one of the things that's really contributing to the breakdown of our society is our fan culture. And the fact, you know, I think one of the things that mm-hmm. really is so damaging in politics is that we've all retreated into our team corner and it's kind of like we're all at a boxing match or a football game and you know we're lined up on these sides and refusing to recognize that the fact is not everybody on the other side is bad and not all their ideas are wrong and you know it's mm-hmm. it, it's very dangerous the direction that we're heading where we all want to cheer for our team um without um, ever having that good sportsmanship of recognizing that, you know, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. At the end of the day, we all have the same goal, which is to, to make, you know, make our community and our state um, a better place to live. And I, I think I want to leave you with this. One of the things that I've, I, I've had the um, real Um, privilege throughout my life of being able to travel quite a bit internationally, um, sometimes for extended periods of time and travel. I've been in 40, 48, 49 now of the 50 states, um, sometimes for extended periods of time. 
And I'll tell you, I have really come to the conclusion that people are the same everywhere. We all have the same goals, dreams, um, things that we care about, things that we fear, things that we value. And at the end of the day, the only thing that really separates liberals from conservatives, Republicans from Democrats, all those things is how we view the role of government in helping to achieve those. And I think, you know, obviously one side feels like government should play a larger role in it than the other does. But at the end of the day, that's really what the only separation is there. We all want the same things. And I, I, I tell people that there, there, there's literally four things that we all need to devote our attention to. And when either party strays away from them, we should call that party out, whether it's ours or whether it's the other side. But they are fundamental to who we are as Americans, and, and, and if we don't hold them as our absolute priorities and we place winning ahead of them, then we're all losing. And th those four are liberty, just human liberty, equality, truth, and rule of law. The, the, the law has to apply to everyone equally. The truth has to matter. We're all equal and we all have to be free. And if we can keep those things at the forefront in all of our discussions, no matter who we're talking to and who we're working with, we're gonna have, we can preserve our country and have a better, better country for everybody.